Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is taken from Proverbs 18, verse 23. The poor man uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. This proverb relates the truism that money affects speech. A poor man is in a position of humility, and that humility affects his communication. Deprived of pride, he he beseeches his audience with supplications and appeals for mercy, knowing that he cannot command or demand respect, even if he is in the right. Instead, his only hope is in the kindness of his superior. The rich man, on the other hand, being accustomed to respect and having a high opinion of himself, responds with strong words. He speaks in a way that represents his hard heart. And that doesn't make it right. It's just the way that it is. Men eat sweet or bitter by the fruit of their mouths, as we studied a couple weeks ago. And death and life are in the power of the tongue. This means that the rich man's rough answer is not justifiable. But money has blinded him to the deeper things of life. In fact, elsewhere, God commands us more specifically to pity the poor and to be kind to those less fortunate than ourselves. Today's proverb reminds us of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In the afterlife, the rich man no longer had any presumptions about his own pride. Instead, he was the one beseeching with entreaties to Abraham and Lazarus. However, this proverb is also an indirect warning against the follies that lead to the condition of poverty, lest you find yourself on the receiving end of the harsh answer. Sometimes people end up getting what they deserve despite our God's incredible grace and mercy. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing to So Paul was in Jerusalem for the purpose of exonerating his gospel. We read in verse 2, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul submitted to a call. He went up by revelation. He communicated the gospel which had been revealed. As per the last two weeks, Jesus Christ had directly revealed to Paul the gospel that he had. So he communicated that gospel to those who seemed to be something. And then he communicated it privately with those who were of reputation lest he might have run his course in vain. 
And we see at the end of our text, in verses 9 and 10, that Paul receives the right hand of fellowship and receives his marching orders from those who seem to be pillars in the church. James, Cephas, and John gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that they should go to the Gentiles. And Peter to the circumcised. And then the marching orders was go to the Gentiles and remember the poor. The central aspect of Paul's gospel was that his, his, his gospel, the message, that the, the burning message that God had placed into his heart was for the Gentiles. And this made circumcision a central and major component of his vetting process. Our text this morning is Paul's own account of his ordination exams. God had given him a message. He had spent 14 years in his hometown growing in, in the gospel. He spent three years in the desert before that, learning the gospel and preaching it. But now he was going to the, the birthplace of the gospel, and he was getting the right hand of fellowship from the other apostles. And he did it first privately. He, he explained what he was teaching to them so that they understood what he was about, what he was doing, and, and, they, and they agreed that it was from God. We know from Acts 11 that a secondary purpose of this trip of Paul's to Jerusalem, 14 years later, was to bring relief from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia to Jerusalem, where the church was poor. And that will come up again later. Now what we're going to see here is that um, reputation, appearances, and perception are important in our text. Three times forms of the Greek verb dokeo, which means to seem or to appear, are used in our text. First in verse 2, um, those who were of reputation. It's a form of the, uh, that, that those who were of reputation is, is a word. It's one word in the Greek, and it's a form of dokeo. It's, it's the ones who were seeming, the ones who were appearing, the ones who, they were people of reputation. And then in verse 6, we see it used twice, those who seemed to be something, those who appeared to be great. And it's, it's used twice there. For those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. And again, we see it used in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, they appeared to be pillars in the church. Now, there's something important going on here with appearances. And uh, this, is, this is important in our text because Paul's ministry and his apostleship were being challenged in Galatia by those who claimed to have authority and who seemed to be something. They were from Judea and they were claiming to have a better knowledge of the gospel than Paul. And this leads us to deal with Paul's argument here in verse 6 about God and personal 
favoritism. Verse 6 reads, God shows personal favoritism to no man. Why is this so important? What's the big deal here? Why is, why is Paul making this such a big deal? It's not the only place in the New Testament where this, this, is, this idea is taught. In James 2, verse 9, James, one of the pillars that vets Paul, says, But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James attacks partiality, shown specifically in his context, to the wealthy over the poor. James was in Jerusalem. It was, for the church, a poor place. And that's why Paul was bringing relief to Jerusalem. There was a a famine coming, and the church in Jerusalem needed aid. Paul was bringing that financial aid on this trip. So, James teaches that we're not to show partiality. Paul, also in Romans 2, says, For there is no partiality with God. Verse 11. And, and here in Romans, Paul is stating that God shows no partiality to Jew or Greek. If one does good or evil, that is the basis on which God judges. God doesn't care about who you are. He doesn't care about where you come from. He doesn't care if your father is Abraham in the flesh or not. He cares about whether you do right or whether you do wrong. He does not show partiality. And then in Luke 20, verse 21, even Christ's enemies recognized that Jesus was without prejudice as they attempted to trip him up by asking him about paying taxes. And they said, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly and you do not show personal favoritism. But teach the way of God in truth. They knew this. They knew that he spoke the truth. And yet they were, they were hypocrites. They were appearing to be something that they were not. They were trying to be good in the eyes of the world. But their hearts were black. But Jesus didn't care about how they looked on the outside. He looked directly at their hearts. And he did not show personal favoritism. The literal rendering of the Greek for personal favoritism is, or or to show partiality, is to take up or regard the face. To take up or regard the person of a man. But you see, God sees the heart. So hypocrisy is impossible before God. God judges rightly every time. He sees right through all the peripherals. We can build up walls. We can try and shield ourselves from God's eye. We can cover ourselves with leaves like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But before God, we are all naked and exposed. God shows personal favoritism to no man. And it doesn't matter what that man seems to be. He might seem to be a pillar in the church, like James and Cephas and John. But God knows him, and God will deal with him accordingly, according to his true knowledge of him. 
And this brings us to the fact that the gospel's work, God's work, is visible. James, Cephas, and John, those who seemed to be pillars, were of reputation. And they were able to perceive the grace that had been given, been given to Paul. They were able to see that grace had been given to Paul. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. So it's, God doesn't care about appearances. God just cares about the truth. But we have to deal with appearances. We have to deal with reputation. Reputation is important. Paul became of reputation. He was known for the works that he did. Paul seemed to be great, and he was great. But the proof of his greatness was in his work. The proof is in the pudding. And you, you can boast all you want about how good your recipe is, but if the pudding doesn't taste very good, there's no proof there. Paul claimed to have received a direct revelation from God. And the proof was in the pudding. It was there. It was visible by James, Cephas, and John. Paul's gospel was from God, and so Paul didn't need the rubber stamp of those who seemed to be something. In fact, Paul didn't care about the rubber stamp of those who seemed to be something. He says directly that. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. The fact that Peter and uh, James and John rubber-stamped what Paul was doing didn't matter to Paul, because if they hadn't, he would have kept doing exactly what God had just displayed to him to do. He had a revelation direct from God. You don't question God. If God tells you something, you do it. Now, the fact of the matter is that he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in Paul toward the Gentiles. So since they were both working by the Holy Spirit, there was no room for division. Peter and James and John would have been in the wrong to deny Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship because their work was a work of God. And this was just like Peter's claim when he first proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles and had to defend himself to the Jews. Remember the text in Acts 11, starting at verse 1. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when, Jesus, when, when Peter came up to Jerusalem... Those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them, in order, from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a great vision, a great sheet, let down from heaven, 
by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And then skipping forward to verse 15, when Peter su submitted to the call and the men came to, to, to him and he went to the centurion. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So God did a work, and man cannot get in the way of God's work. God worked in Peter, and God worked in Paul, and that's why they got along. The arguments were the same. He who worked in Paul was the same one as he who worked in Peter. The gospel was not just for the Jews, and the gospel did not require that the Jews, that the, 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 the Gentiles, be circumcised. Now, Titus was not required to be cir circumcised. We read explicitly in our text. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Titus was not required to become circumcised. In fact, he was required to not become cir circumcised. He was required to not become circumcised. There's a difference between Titus not being required to be circumcised and Titus being required to not become circumcised. And the reason that Paul absolutely refused to allow Titus to be circumcised was because of wolves among the sheep. There were false brethren. We read in verses 4 and 5, And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, to which we, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. These false brethren, much like the false teachers in Galatia, whom Paul was writing to defend himself against, these false brethren, much like the false teachers in Galatia, seemed to be something. They were brethren. They were within the church. They were baptized. They were from Judea. In fact, they had enough influence in the church that they tried to compel Titus to be circumcised. But they were not motivated by the gospel. They were not motivated by a revelation from God or the Holy Spirit. They were not motivated by zeal from God. They were motivated by jealousy and envy. They were jealous of the freedom that the Gentiles had in Christ. 
They were trying to bind the church with the bondage of false requirements for salvation. They were trying to bind the church with the keeping of the Mosaic law. And Paul wasn't fooled for even a second. He immediately recognized the political machinations, the posturing of these false brethren, and stood his ground. He instantly saw that the gospel and its truth was at stake. We did not yield submission even for an hour, but the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Remember, Paul was there for the reason of exonerating his gospel to the Gentiles. Paul took Titus with him on this trip to Jerusalem on purpose. He wasn't just somebody who happened to come along. He was, a, he was a brother in the Lord, he was a faithful Christian, and he was a Gentile who was uncircumcised. And Paul took him along for the purpose of revealing whether the church in Jerusalem understood the Gospels of the Gentiles. He knew the Jewish propensities for the Mosaic Law. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Titus was a test case. However, though Paul absolutely refused and rejected circumcision for Titus, it was not because Paul had a dislike or a rejection of circumcision proper. He rejected circumcision for Titus for theological reasons, on theological grounds. Titus was a Christian, he was a Gentile, he did not need circumcision to be saved. His ministry was to Gentiles. He eventually uh, established a church on Crete, the island of Crete, which was a Greek island. But Paul was not afraid of circumcision in the case of Timothy. His rejection of circumcision for Titus was not because he disliked or rejected circumcision proper, but because he would not allow the gospel to the Gentiles to be compromised by the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 16, verses 1 to 4, we read about the circumcision of Timothy. It's interesting that it happens in Acts 16, one chapter after Acts 15. And in Acts 15, we have the Jerusalem Council. And in the Jerusalem Council, the whole point of it was to, to heal a breach in the church, where circumcision had been commanded in order to be saved. And the church in Jerusalem came to, came to the, the agreement that circumcision is not required of the Gentiles. And we read, Then he, Paul, came to Derbe and Lystra, which is in Galatia, by the way, where Paul's writing to now. Which have, The writing of the book of Galatia was before this in time. But Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, 
And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So immediately after Paul gets a decree from Jerusalem that circumcision is not necessary, he shows up in Galatia and circumcises Timothy because of the Jews. How does that make any sense? Well, Paul circumcised Timothy because his mother was a Jew. And his ministry would be to the Jews in the dispersion. So Paul did not want circumcision to be a stumbling block to the Jews. In essence, in circumcision, Timothy became all things to all people. And then he used that podium that circumcision gave him so that he could speak to the Jews and not be ridiculed. And he immediately went out and proclaimed the decrees that had just been given in Jerusalem that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. It was not necessary for the Gentiles. So thus we see that either circumcision or uncircumcision is nothing to Paul. God shows personal favoritism to no man. It doesn't matter. What matters is the gospel. Jesus came and lived and died, and he freely gives grace. If you need to jump through some hoops in order to explain that to somebody, it's worth it. Their eternal soul is worth it. But the hoops don't matter. They really don't matter. So now let's look a little bit at Peter's gospel and Paul's gospel. The time that Paul was writing about in our text this morning was around the time that the church had to deal with the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. It was very important that the Jerusalem church accepted Paul. It was very important because God was working in Paul, and Paul was about to initiate his missionary work. He came to Jerusalem, he was vetted, and as soon as he was vetted, they sent him out to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And in, from Acts, we know that from there, he went on his first missionary journey, which took him to Cyprus and Galatia. And then as soon as he got back home, he had to write this book because the Galatians were listening to those who seemed to be something. But Paul had gotten vetted before he took off on his missionary journey. He was one in spirit. He had the right hand of fellowship with James and Cephas and John. God had already shown that Paul's ministry was effective. And a division here would have been a lie about God. A division between Paul and Peter, a division between Paul and James would be a lie about God. Because there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are one. There's no room for division in the church. 
So there was a difference between Peter and Paul's Gospels. Peter's Gospel was to to the circumcised. And Paul's was to the uncircumcised. Both were given their calls directly by God. Those who seemed to be something added nothing to them. And both Peter and Paul questioned their own, whether whether they, they themselves seemed to be anything. Peter, in our text, when we were reading in, in, in Acts, says, Who was I to, just, to argue with the Holy Spirit? I'm nothing. Paul, time and again, says, Well, I'm this and that. And I'm, if, 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 if what matters, if what they're saying matters, well, I'm all that. I'm better than them. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day, etc., etc., etc. But I'm the least of the apostles. I was one called out of due season. It's the truth of the gospel that matters, not Paul. It's the truth of the gospel that matters, not Peter. But both of their ministries were sanctioned, and both of their ministries were faithful. But there are those today who seem to be something that emphasize aspects of Paul's gospel. And there are others today who seem to be something who emphasize... James and Peter's gospel, and to the exclusion of each other. Paul's gospel is emphasized justification by faith alone. James's gospel, faith without works is dead. Which one is right? Both of these doctrines are taught in God's law. And James and Peter and Paul all shared the right hand of fellowship. They don't disagree with each other. And moreover, the conclusion was the same. Romans, Paul's book of Romans, was a fundraising letter for the church in Jerusalem. That's what First and Second Corinthians. James tells us, that pure and undefiled religion is visiting the widow and the orphan in their hour of need. And James, Cephas, and John desired only the very thing that Paul was also eager to do. And that was that they should remember the poor. Paul claims that we're saved by faith. But that justification by faith results in a drive to minister to the needy, to minister to the poor, to minister to the downtrodden. It, it results in action. His faith is not without works. James says that faith without works is dead. But it's still faith. It's not not faith. The poor are the recipients of the gospel. The gospel is for the poor. So who are the poor? Are they the ones who seem to be something? Who take pride in their accomplishments? 
Who was right? Paul? The false teachers. Paul didn't care about all the seeming. The false teachers did. How does God's attitude toward personal favoritism relate to all this? The first century Jews had a major problem with Jesus as the Messiah. Because he was poor. Because he submitted to death on a cross. Because he was the servant of all. They wanted a David. They wanted a Solomon. They wanted a military, mighty, national victory. That's not what Jesus gave them. All through the Gospels, his own disciples didn't even get it. Now obviously they put two and two together after the resurrection, and especially after Pentecost, but their former attitudes were representative of how the unbelieving Jews thought of Jesus. While on earth, Jesus was not impressive to them. And the Judaizers, the false brethren, entering into the church to spy out the Christian's freedom, continued to belittle Jesus' work by requiring further obedience than Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. They wanted to put the church back in bondage to the requirements of the fulfilled law because they wanted a Jewish kingdom of God. And they were attempting to eke one out of the church. They saw a growing religious movement. So they wanted to tweak it so that it would be their gospel. They wanted to pervert it. And they lied about the true gospel. Ultimately, they desired earthly glory and earthly riches. They were hypocrites. They were hypocritical. For them, it was all about appearances. So thus, the gospel had a serious clash with the Jewish worldview and the expectations, their expectations regarding the Messiah. Paul's gospel was Jesus' gospel. Remember, Jesus had delivered it to him directly, without any intermediation. And the gospel is for the downtrodden. When John's disciples inquired if Jesus was the one for whom they sought, if he was the Christ, Jesus told them to report what they saw. The blind see the lame walk, the dumb talk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the prisoners are set free. Jesus' gospel is for the down in the mouth. It's a free gift of grace from God. The gospel is for the poor. The church in Jerusalem was financially poor. But Jerusalem also was rich in its history, in its heritage, and in the authority it had in the church. Jesus was a Jew. He was killed and resurrected there in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit appeared there at Pentecost. 
And the apostles were based there. So in in Jerusalem's case, personal favoritism works both ways. God didn't despise the church for its financial poorness, its financial weakness. But he also didn't give them any extra special sauce because James and Cephas and John walked to the soil there. God plays no favorites. He rewards the righteous and the wicked according to their deeds. Nevertheless, there are rich and there are poor. God's gospel loves. And what that means is that those who have share with those who do not. James, pure and unrefiled, undefiled religion is this. We must visit the widow and orphan in their hour of need. We must be like children if we want to be great. If we want to be great in Christ's kingdom, we must be the servants of all. We must be humble. We must... God is up here, and we are down here. And the best of us are maybe that much higher than the rest of us. We're all nothing before God. He doesn't care. All He wants from us is to be open to His leading and His teaching. He wants to turn us into vessels of His Holy Spirit. He wants to lift us up because we are nothing without Him. Every one of us. And the only way that any of us are anything is if His Holy Spirit is in us and we are being Christ to the world. And we are representing Him to the world. He will recognize Himself in us, but He will recognize nothing else. Because anything else is a perversion of Him. So fill yourself up with Him and empty yourself of yourself. A ministry for the poor, a ministry for the downtrodden, is not a burden for those to whom God has given the notoriously free grace of the gospel. The ministry to the poor is not a burden for those whom God has overwhelmingly showered with grace. Undeservedly, you've received His blessing. Why should it bother you so much to share a little of what you have with those who do not? It's not a burden. It's a blessing. On the contrary, with Paul, and on the contrary to it being a burden, with Paul, we should all proclaim that remembering the poor is the very thing which I also was eager to do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. The Apostle Paul was an apostle. He had been given a revelation directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone were to seem to be somebody, It would have been him. But he didn't rely on his authority and lord it over everybody. He didn't 
puffed himself up with pride. Instead, he humbly sought out the pillars of the church and sought to be exonerated in his gospel, the gift of our Lord. He lived a life of service, remembering the poor. He sought to glory in nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that he glorified in his suffering and in his humility. If you want to be great in Christ's kingdom, you must become a servant of all. Jesus did, and he shows us how. He gives of himself so that we can all be lifted up. Jesus showed the way, and the gospel he proclaims on this table is the gospel of a free and unencumbered grace which will wash away all of our sins. Praise be to God. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and body. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.